I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Peter Frankopan, is a professor of global history at Oxford University with comprehensively wide-ranging interests, including the history and politics of the Mediterranean, Russia, the Middle East, ancient Persia and modern Iran, Central Asia, and China. Peter often writes for the international press and is the author of The First Crusade, The Call from the East, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, and The New Silk Roads, The Future and Present of the World, which have been translated into 40 languages, become international bestsellers, and garnered multiple prestigious awards. His latest book, which is the subject of today's interview, is The Earth Transformed, An Untold History, an environmental history of both the human and natural past from billions of years ago until the present across the entire planet. So Peter, welcome to Delving In. Thanks, Stuart, very kind to have me. Peter, is it fair to say that as a historian, have all of your projects been this ambitious? No, probably not. I've written a history of the world that goes from the Big Bang and the creation of the Earth up until today. But look, I'm a professor at Oxford, and it's quite hard to get a position like mine. But if you're able to get your foot on the ladder, then I guess your job is to be brave. The great historian, Ferdinand Braudel, his great advice is for all historians, you need to try and push the envelope. You need to try to be expansive. And one of the problems I think we have as academic historians is quite often we become extreme specialists in one area and joining up some of those silos. It's not always easy, and but on the other hand, we probably need to connect and communicate with the general readers better than sometimes we do. But yeah, this one is a particularly ambitious book. That makes me proud to have written it as well. And I would imagine it implies that the your readership is also ambitious, that they want to take in this incredibly comprehensive overview of everything. So that's pretty cool that you're connecting with like-minded people and that there are a lot of like-minded people because they've become bestsellers. The world never ceases to amaze me, Stuart. You write a book and sometimes I walk into bookstores and they've been quite prominently displayed my books over the last 10 years or so. And, and I'll stand and I'll watch out of the corner of my eye as people pick the book up, turn it over. They've got a, it's always got a beautiful cover. You know, I work with Emma Eubank, who's been fantastic at designing the covers for my books in the past. And I'm very interested about why people choose to read the kinds of things that they rent. When I was a young academic and I would go to bookstores, it was always interesting to me that people would always head for US independence. They would read about the First World War. They'd read about Hitler and the Second World War. And to find the kinds of the balance of who wants to read things that they don't already know about and who wants to read things that they're familiar with because it's comforting. And so it's a really interesting anthropological exercise to see what it is that people want to read. But my, my publisher for the book that I did before The Silk Roads didn't think anybody would read The Silk Roads, so they turned it down. They said no one would read this stuff, and anyway, it's too hard to write. And so I moved to my current publisher, Bloomsbury and Knopf, about 10 years ago, and millions of copies later, here you go. So it, it is amazing that people will read big history, and they'll read stuff that is quite challenging, and they enjoy it because knowledge is not just something you pick up at high school or at college. It's something you can keep on learning, and, and well-written history that brings the reader alongside so it's not easy to do well, but great that I've had a platform to be able to do that. And the book has just an incredible wealth of detail, almost like an encyclopedia on its subject. You name it, it's in there. But I'm wondering, my impression is that one of the aims of the book is to humble us, that by recognizing that impressive human accomplishments notwithstanding, we overestimate our ability to tame the forces of nature. We clear-cut forests, plant monoculture crops that deplete the soil, dam rivers for irrigation and electric power over-rely on pesticides and fertilizers, and that if we continue to do so, we'll be at our peril. 
And I recognize that the book was only published a few months ago, but based on early feedback, do you think the book is accomplishing the goal of, shall we say, hubris reduction? There's plenty of that going round. The hubris reduction right now, we're talking at a time where there's a major invasion and a land war in Europe. There's a major escalation of trade conflicts between China and the US and a whole new world order that's being built. Climate and global warming is obviously a part of that. As it happens today, a declaration has been signed by some of the biggest names in tech saying that AI is a bigger threat than pandemic or nuclear war. Again, here in the UK this morning, we're going through our coronavirus investigation and the warning that the big one of pandemics is still to come, the coronavirus, however bad it was. So I think if you want hubris and you want to be scared, there are all sorts of reasons to do that. My job is is to be a historian and not to predict the future, uh, but to try to explain the past. I think one of the aims, though, is to warn about a possible future. You can't predict it with precision as a historian, but certainly there's enough consensus that global warming is an enormous threat and that a billion people could be displaced within the next 50 years or something like that. The the threats are so imminent and yet not imminent enough, apparently, (laughs) for a lot of people. I think it's worse than that. The United Nations produced a report in March that said that 3.5 billion people in the world today already experience severe water shortage for at least one month of the year. That's not a future in 50 years time where we're worried about water. That's about the here and now where UNICEF already has a billion children in the world have some kind of exposure to warming and climate events, whether that's through storms or flooding or droughts. Lots of people, I think, find this very difficult to not just understand, but in some cases believe. So as it happens in your House of Congress, you have a very high number of congressmen and senators, far higher than the national average, who don't believe that the world is warming or that humans are responsible. And that flies in the face of scientific papers and and 99% all have sort of congruity around that. I think my point is to explain what has happened in the past, to explain what has happened when climates have changed and when there's been pressure on resources. And those resources obviously can mean food, they can mean water, Humans are very adaptable to all sorts of crises. But I guess my starting point is that in the grand scheme of history of the Earth, human beings, we're much less important than we think we are. For one thing, as a good starting point, I said at the beginning of the book, if you take as the starting point of humanity as the bit where we have recorded history, where humans learn how to write, you know, writing scripts about 5,000 years old, when writing scripts are invented, then we know what people think, what they say is going on at the time. May not always be reliable, but people record their thoughts. Before writing scripts, we've got no idea. But that bit where text starts to be written, that accounts for 0.001% of the world's existence. And just for our listeners, not means zero <laughs> in, in, in American English. percent <laughs> of the world's geological existence. And I think that if you want a humbling starting point, that's that this world, this planet we live on, is one that has existed a long time before our species came into being, and I suspect will exist a long time after one day we bow to biological inevitability, unless we can stay ahead of these problems. Okay, so let's provide the context from the beginning and then, not at length because we only have an hour for everything, but if we go back to the early Earth, how has the atmosphere changed between then and now, and how did we arrive in what you call the Goldilocks zone? You didn't make up the term, but the Goldilocks zone that's ideally suited to the rapid development of human civilization. Yeah, the short version is is you're going to have some listeners who will have very strong religious and possibly even fundamentalist religious beliefs. But even for people who take the Bible literally, for example, the Old Testament literally, the Torah literally, even that story is an ecological one. God creates the world. 
to be perfect. It puts all the animals in, the oceans, the mountains, and then the last moment decides to put in human beings. And he gives humans one job, which is you'll have everything you need in the Garden of Eden, but don't eat the fruit from the forbidden tree. And when Adam and Eve decide to do that, and that's a story that's sacred in Judaism, in Christianity, and by the way, in Islam, then the punishment for humans is an ecological one. You're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, or our ancestors are all kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We're made to suffer by not being able to have all the food we want, having to be careful and pray for rain, and have to try to earn God's trust again. So that, that's the kind of the biblical telling of the story that the world was created over the course of four and a half billion years. Yeah, if I could just throw in just a slightly different interpretation that the sin of eating the tree of knowledge meant that humans now have a thirst for knowledge and an ability to acquire knowledge, and boy, they're going to get in trouble with it. <laughs> I think that's those two sides of the same coin. That's right. That gave us the ability to investigate things, but it also allowed us to be architects of our own disaster. So on the plus column, we write symphonies, we write great Netflix shows, we have wonderful works of art capable of profound generosity to fellow human beings, but we also invent nuclear weapons. We also invent tools of weapons of mass destruction. We also invent the ability to persecute on a scale that results in things, the Holocaust. And I think that, that binary about the fact that humans are both good and bad, and that they'll solve one problem only to create others is one that goes very deep across different religious beliefs. But I guess if you take the world from a geological point of view, up until the arrival of the first humans, I think what's interesting is, apart from the fact that we are, we're quite new on the scene, it's that we, like every other life form on this planet, descends from the very few numbers of species that survived five mass extinctions before us. And those were from the result of volcanic eruptions that didn't last for a few months or a few years, but in some cases for thousands of years, spewing ash into the atmosphere and cooling the earth down, or most famously, the asteroid strike that did for the dinosaurs. And the survival, the ad adaptation from those crises helped create uh, atmospheric conditions and, in fact, ecological conditions that explain lots of things in the world today. So we forget that Mount Everest, you find marine fossils on a right at the summit because that used to be on the seabed. We forget that these mountains that are the highest ones on Earth are some of the most recent and all to do with the way in which the tectonic plates have moved. We forget that the, the mineral wealth of, let's say, Russia or the Middle East or parts of the United States are all to do with the haphazard ways in which life has died before our times, millions, in fact, hundreds of millions of years beforehand, that left these great concentrations of coal or oil or gas that we now want to exploit. And again, that shows our ingenuity, but it, hey, it, it turns out if you burn a lot of this stuff, it changes the atmospheric conditions of the planet, puts a lot of carbon dioxide and carbon into the atmosphere, but also heats up the earth. So there was all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere before, and then because of plant and animal life, it got sequestered, in a sense, into bodies and then buried, and then suddenly it's not in the atmosphere anymore. Suddenly, over millions of years, <laughs> it's not in the atmosphere anymore. And then we're returning us to the atmosphere in an incredibly rapid rate. The speed, that's the key. So the world's temperatures and climates have changed over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So we've had times, even 12,000 years ago, the continent of Australia was 30% bigger than it is today because of sea level rises. We've seen lots of changes over the long run. And, and it's, most of those are to do with natural cycles of solar activity, the climate systems on Earth of which the North Atlantic Oscillation or the El Nino and La Nina signals are really important ones. So there are lots of different ways in which our climate changes because of volcanoes, the way the moon behaves, etc. We have a, the Earth isn't completely round, which is why we get that leap day every four years. We have a little wobble that happens every now and again. 
But the speed of these changes in the modern world is unprecedented. So right now in 2023, we have the highest carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere for 2 million years and the warmest the world has been for 125,000 years. And we were going through a warming cycle, but that's accelerating because of the way we live. Yeah, so two of the key ideas, one is that the rapidity of today's changes, but also the fact that the Earth used to be different, that there were amazingly different things as opposed to the biblical story. So for instance, there were grasslands in the Sahara, there were rainforests in the Arctic, just incredibly vastly different ecosystems than they are now. And that Earth is always changing, but again, the speed is what's different. And you mentioned about adaptability, that humans are incredibly adaptable. But yet we haven't always been able to adapt, at least not in the region where the climate disaster is happening. I don't mean today's disaster, but past disasters. Societies, it's not, it's not so complicated, I think, to look at history if you strip it down to its bricks, its constituent parts, which is that a city or a state, it's a bit like an average, it's a bit like your household. You have, you have an income every month, ideally, and then you have your outgoings. And if your income remains stable and predictable, then you can carry on going on your holidays, you can balance your books, you can work out what you can spend, and some years you've got a bit left over, and some years you've got a little bit over budget, but over the long run it balances. Well, what the problem is, is that if you suddenly have a shock and you lose your job, and that monthly salary doesn't come in anymore, then you're in trouble. And quite often what happens climatologically is that where there are sudden shocks, rains that fail, uh, high levels of aridity, which produce a shortage of crops, the prices go up as well because there's less of stuff to go around. And that can put sudden pressure on political systems. And that, that's happened a great deal in the past. So people in Mesopotamia, the great cradles of civilization in the Nile, in Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates, or in India, what's now China, people who are writing some of the very earliest texts are extremely concerned about the worries about ecological change. And it's not that they're worried about lot of rain or not enough rain, it's that what happens if things go wrong? And there's a kind of sequence that happens when things go wrong, that prices go up, inflation kicks in, people who are poor obviously suffer most, that can produce political instability, social instability, it reduces calorie consumption, that can help lead towards disease environments. And then, hey presto, cities disappear. And I think because we think about history, really, and particularly in the States, we tend to think of history as even things that happened 200 years ago, it's a completely different time. We don't have that kind of context for the fact that the world hasn't looked like it does today, politically, economically, for a long time. The United States is indisputably the world's greatest power, but 150 years ago it wasn't, and few would have bet on the fact that it would would have been. So trying to explain how the natural world, how climate, how weather, how consumption changes the ecological lottery that we have is, is, I think, a really important way of looking at history, that we don't just look at great figures and typically great men from the past, but to widen it out, to put us in within a context. Yeah, and also mass migrations. Or uh, I was fascinated to read in your book that 18% of the men in India come from originally Scandinavia, Central Europe, and Siberia. And so we're talking about like massive migration. They have the same haplotype. It means that the, these people have migrated, were originally part of a similar genetic mix. Oh, I see. So it could have been the other way around then. So they'd have come from the central part of what's now Central Asia, Eurasia, and some would have headed north into Scandinavia and some headed south into India. And what is incredible about history writing in the modern day is that we've had to rely for a long time on written records. When I was a young historian doing my PhD, to study history meant reading what other people wrote. 
and then a bit of archaeology and a bit of art. But today we've got these incredible tools from the sciences that allow us to be able to tell, for example, genetic matches between peoples in one part of the world and the other. And that allows us to use the sciences to give data points and accuracy to working out what we're looking at. So we don't just have to rely on what people wrote about in the ancient world. So the, these new tools help give us a sort of 360 degree view of what history really means. So I wanted to offer a, a visual image for the rapidity of change. I don't know if you remember these opening scenes of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where after the, uh, the fight between the two tribes, the uh, one of the uh, proto men is beating his chest and throws the bone, which he had been using as a club, into the air. It twirls in the air and it turns into a satellite in space, as if the whole development from the, just the notion of a tool to modern technology is just the blink of an eye. And I was thinking similarly, you could show the discoverer of fire in some ancient time and just beating his chest and the smoke is going up and then you see the smoke is coming out of a smokestack and out of a power plant. <laughs> just the notion that nature can be tamed somehow. We've been pretty good at that as humans. We've been pretty good at working out what we want and what we need and how to use technologies to our advantage. But the intensity of exchange can produce a downside too. So you point out in the book that, that the word civilization comes from the Latin word civitas, which means city. Could you tell us how did cities and later empires create the need for greater and greater resources and sources of energy? It's, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong here, that you attribute, I think, uh, some of the changes climatologically to the growth of cities and the concentration of resources that are needed for city. No, I think what happens when people live close by to each other, they consume in different ways. So if we think about modern cities today, where I am in London, we're highly productive because we are we're, we're lots of people living close by to each other. So if you measure the daily levels of exchange in London, uh, people buying pints of milk or orange juice or bread or clothes, these activities you measure in vast scale, whereas in the Outer Hebrides or in rural Cornwall or Northern Scotland, people live a lot further apart from each other. So the levels of engagement and exchange are very different. So there's, there's, there are lower concentrations. Typically then what that means is that because space in a city is at a premium, it's expensive and there are lots of us, we tend to live in quite small apartments because big stuff is really expensive. And that therefore drives consumption patterns that are different. So you tend not to grow your meat inside a city. You tend not to have cow, pig farms and chickens being grown in cities because and looked at reared in cities because it's expensive so they live outside they're reared outside so there's a constant balance between where large populations live and how do you feed them how do you heat them and how do you give them energy sources because heat is not just important to keep you warm but it breaks down protein when you cook it but also every single piece of glass every single brick every single piece of metal requires a heat source to be able to warm it up so i write about for example in the roman empire the great city of rome had a population of somewhere between half a million people and a million people. And while I'm quite interested in what the emperors did in their spare time and who they had murdered and how they competed for power, by and large, most people in the Roman Empire weren't that interested. In fact, most people in the Roman Empire typically didn't know who the emperor was. They didn't know their name, let alone who they were sleeping with or who they were having killed. But at the same time, what Romans did need is they needed to eat every day. So it's where does that wheat come from that feeds the great masses in Rome? Where does the wood come from that are used in the great baths, let's say of Caracalla, where several thousand people would go every day to go and sit in the steam rooms? And if you can think about things like wood as being an important resource, then it's very expensive to haul heavy materials that are not that, not that valuable, but you need a lot of them 
from one place to the other. So I write about in Rome to say, look, one of the challenges of a city is the ecological footprint it produces. Cities have lots of people in it who need feeding every day. They need huge amounts of protein, of dairy. They need textiles to make their factories work and and, and their workshops for leather and, and making clothes. Also the byproducts. And the way that people not living in cities who are farmers or mobile people, mobile groups who are looking after animals and horses and cows and pigs and sheep and so on, they tend not to get written about too much in history. It's always about the emperor. It's always about that character that's going to be cast in your Netflix series rather than these groups who don't really leave great histories. So trying to integrate them back in together seems to me quite an interesting thing to try to do. And civilization, is in, like you said, in terms of meaning the city, obscures the fact that being civilized normally means you don't know how to grow carrots. People who live in cities don't really know how to milk a cow. They don't know how to pluck a chicken, but they know how to read and write. And that prioritizes one set of knowledge over another, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly. And, and of course, you need to have this sort of an abundance of, of resources in, in a sort of concentrated way. You need to have, nowadays, it's factory farms feeding cities. In the old days, you might need vast tracts of agricultural land in a place that could support that. It just seems that there are... If not the effect of cities on the climate, you have the cities being especially vulnerable to changes of the climate because there is this concentration. Yeah, that's right. The long and short of it is that places that are big are highly vulnerable. So cities with large populations, if for whatever reason they get cut off of water or energy or food, then suddenly you've got a crisis very quickly. For example, in cities in places like India in the 18th century, Famine was a killer that would sometimes kill in the, in the millions, even the multi-million scale, because getting food from A to B wasn't always straightforward. And so if we think about history over the longer term, those great cities of Mesopotamia or of Egypt or of the Indus Valley, they're not here anymore. They don't exist anymore because they failed. And most of history is about failure. The reason why the United States became the greatest power, one of the reasons why the United States became the greatest power in the world is because its competitors were useless. And the United States benefited at the, because of the weaknesses and the strains and the difficulties of empires in Europe, Russia, Soviet Union, etc. And that dynamic is, I think, quite an interesting one around one reason why the US became so important is that it has an extraordinary geography of the distribution of natural wealth from farming and from oil and from coal and from energy, um, and also has is the great fortune of being the only land empire in history that has only two two neighbors, Mexico and Canada, land neighbors, which means that the level of conflict internally is very low. And that's not what Europe looks like. We have endless competition for the fields and for the resources that happen in our continent, which means that from 1300 until the Second World War, there was a war between European powers at least every 10 years on average. Yeah, so maybe what, what you're getting at here is that the Goldilocks planet, even when it's the overall Goldilocks planet, is not uniformly Goldilocks. You have zones and regions that are much better suited for, let's say, agriculture, which is the important thing in the past, and those that aren't. And those centers shift. They don't stay fixed. Exactly. And sometimes they shift because different resources become important at different times. If we'd been talking 120 years ago, no one would have cared about oil or gas. Coal would have been important. I suspect if we were talking in 20 years' time, and Stuart, please do invite me back on before then, we'll be thinking more about copper or lithium or rare earths maybe even iron ore, rather than oil and coal and in the clean energy transition. So that there's a change about what's required. And what humans are quite good at doing is introducing different kinds of resources into different periods. So 
the story of European colonization of the Americas, for example, was in part, of course, the horrors of the slave trade, but it was above all about exploiting landscapes in particularly North and South America, also the Caribbean, to grow the crops that would pr produce the biggest reward. And in short order, those were sugar and cotton and, and then tobacco. And because the fields of the southern part of the United States lent themselves particularly well to those crops, those became exploited by a different form of political and social control where you had big landowners who wanted large amounts of slave labor. Those crops are not so suited for the northern part of the United States. The Mason-Dixon line wasn't just a political one, it was also an ecological barrier where to the north you couldn't really grow those crops. And that meant that you didn't need large numbers of people to be shipped in chains from Africa to work. So even the distribution of populations of slaves in the United States was highly shaped by these ecology, ecologies and ecological factors and by crops that were introduced because they made the highest amount of profit for, their, for the owners of those lands and that they wanted to make the maximum profit at the, at the, with the lowest possible input. And that meant slavery, racism and all those horrors that came with it established themselves in a way that had legacies that are still with us today. Yeah, so it's interesting you talk about the kind of the scientific and technological aspects of the subject, but you also delve into the religious beliefs, which we, you mentioned before about the book of Genesis, but also one of the more fascinating parts of your book, you talk about the belief that the gods controlled nature, they controlled rainfall, and that the gods needed to be supplicated. And somehow, I don't know how leaders managed to do this, but they convinced their population that they had a special in <laughs> with the gods that were controlling the rain. And that if they weren't able to bring the rain back within a reasonable amount of time, they, their leadership would be seriously challenged at that point. I guess it's, it doesn't seem to me too tricky to understand. I guess on the one hand, when you look up at the skies, that's where the rain comes from and that's where the baking sun likewise. So the big floods or the famines and the droughts, they, these seem to be celestial. And by and large, most many human societies developed cosmologies where the gods were up there somewhere. A god or lots of gods were up there somewhere. But I guess that what the story of those religions about how you ask how do leaders manage to convince people to go along with them, I guess is that we've always tried to think that good moral behavior is rewarded. And I don't think we just think that in religious terms or in ecological terms. I think we tend to think, we tend to find it easier to think that people who are successful, who are good people and kind and charitable uh, deserve their success. Whereas people who are total bastards, to use a good English word that on this side of the Atlantic and apologies to those in America not used to hearing that, we tend to find it harder when people who are bad people do well. And I think it's because we want to see good behavior being rewarded. And I think that that's in a way true of the secular world as well as the religious one. So religious leaders first had a sort of infrastructure around them. They had priests and temples where offerings were made to, to the gods. And it was obvious that if you made offerings and you said your prayers, if you still got punished with devastating earthquakes and, and a terrible famine and hunger and death, that someone was doing something wrong or behaving badly, and that therefore it served everybody to behave in a good moral way. And trying to encourage citizens to not be selfish, to be kind to the poor, to give alms and to give donations to the church or to the temples of the priests, it was, it's not necessarily all about being credulous and being stupid and believing everything you see. It, it's you're trying to find a way where your input can help make the world a better place. And that may not be quite, that may not be all bad. And also encourages collective goodness, not just the individual, but there's a kind of summation of the goodness of the whole society, how the society is structured, for instance, how the poor is taken care of. 
And, and that creates cohesion amongst towns. We walk outside our doors, each of us, whichever city in the world you're listening to this broadcast or podcast, we can see people who live near us or opposite us next door, and they can be as similar to us or as different to us as we like. Their similarity, they might support a different football team. They might have a different skin color. They might prefer a different type of wine, or they might not like alcohol at all. And we can all choose whether we're in it together. But ties that remind us of our common heritages and our common destinies and our common journeys are really important. And like I write in my book, one of the things that's most important to that is, is warfare. Because when you're attacked, that's when you find common cause. You forget about the differences with your neighbors. The fact that they support Chicago Bulls and you're a Boston Celtics fan becomes less important if you're all being attacked. So the theory of it's called ultra sociability, the theory where you are encouraged to feel that you're part of a similar group as others, whether it's from a particular city or from the state of New Mexico or here that you're British. It's a selective process, but it's all bound by what kind of pressures do you come under? And funnily enough, some of the almost all the great empires in history, 85% of, of measurable empires have come into being because of the proximity to people who don't live in cities, but people who have horses in particular, people who are able to, the horse is the kind of tank of, the, of history before the motorized mechanical vehicles the last 100 years. And amazingly, all those threats that came from people like the Mongols or the Huns were brutal and dangerous, but also incredibly important in in creating ideas away from themselves about what it meant to be Chinese or Indian or a Muslim or Russian or Kievan, because it made you have to concentrate the minds when you are under threat. So that balance about identity, why do we sometimes put differences to one side and sometimes make common cause? It's a hugely important part of understanding things. I write about it in my book to, of course, link it to the natural world, because that's the key to it all. It's about what resources you have between you that you can share. So it sounds like we really could use a really external enemy, like an alien invasion. Partisan support around China, for example, is one of the single big... No, I meant an invasion from outer space. <laughs> we need, it's, if we want to have cohesion globally, if only the threats to the environment could be considered as if it were an alien invasion, we'd be all set, then we'd actually work together. I think that there's probably something in that. I think that there are plenty of these things politically that, that unite us together. As it happens, we live in a world of division right now and in, in an age of fragmentation. And funnily enough, some things, they can pull us together. The coronavirus did that. The idea that every single person on earth was scared of disease and we were all being locked up by governments was something that we found very difficult. But it created two different camps, people who hated it, resisted what the government were telling you, and those who felt that we should be compliant. So it created these two tribes that are now still flogging each other, in the, in the, like you have in the US, the Republican tribe and the Democrat tribe. And there's very few, there's very little in the middle and that's a big change in the people of our generation, Stuart. When we were growing up, there, was a, there were quite a lot of people who felt that they could maybe be persuaded to switch their votes depending on who the exact candidate was. But now that ossification, that, that creation of two groups who are set against each other have all been caused by exactly this idea of you're under attack. So Democrats have become much stronger as a unit because of how Republicans have behaved. And Republicans likewise, thinking that Biden and others are, are evil incarnate, have form their own strength. So finding things that bring those two together is really tricky. Alien, alien invasion is what we should hope for to end that all, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that the internal fragmentation is, I would imagine, exacerbated by the level of threat, whether it's an environmental threat or an international threat or a financial threat. And I would guess that when global warming really heats up, it's already upon us, but it's gonna get worse and worse. 
that there's a real danger of greater internal divisions, which will make it even harder to respond properly. Yeah, I think that the key thing about global warming and the challenges that are coming towards us don't get spread evenly. So in the first instance, it's the people in the poorest countries with the least infrastructure who get hit worse. And of course, ironically, those are the people who've got the least responsibility for burning fuel and for heating up the atmosphere. You know, that if you're wealthy enough, you can mitigate, you can invent, you can spend money to solve the problems. For example, Saudi Arabia, a country that doesn't have a single lake or a single river, mean average temperatures in the summer above now 45 degrees centigrade. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit for you guys over there, but that's hot, 120 plus. That's unsurvivable if you stay out in it. You need to have air conditioning or something. Saudi Arabia, as of just before the pandemic, which is the last numbers that I've seen, Saudi Arabia was burning 750,000 barrels of oil per day just on their air conditioning. So if you've got the money and the resources, you can survive under unsurvivable heat. You can build in places that doesn't have water. You can keep buildings cool if you're wealthy enough. So we're not all in it together. I think that's one of the things about changes to the environment and to the world around us. So there's some important lessons I write about that in the past. For example, I write about in the 530s, there's a sequence of volcanic eruptions that take place that change that injects volcanoes inject huge amounts of aerosols and particles up into the atmosphere they block the sun's rays and one of the direct results is over the coming months sometimes years there's a collapse in agricultural production because photosynthesis when you remember that from school the sun's rays don't arrive quite often there's water impacts too so crops fall uh, in their production prices rise and because people are eating less their immune systems become weaker and in the sequence in the 530s what happens is that there's a change to the pathogen that underlies the plague. And the plague that spreads, brought by different animals, by bugs, etc., kills something like at least a third of the population of Europe, maybe more, and about the same across the Middle East, probably spreads into Africa and deep into China in ways which we hadn't understood before. But thanks to some of these new genetic tools, we can tell. And those fragilities mean that if you lose a third of your city population, and in fact, as was you done, as you'd assume, cities lose bigger populations because we're closer to each other so you can cough on each other easier and quicker than in the countryside then you can see catastrophic changes that happen to social structures and so on so that that way in which the natural world helps shape our history i think we just don't think about it very much but that'll happen in the future too you quote the uk's office of for budget responsibility as saying it's easy to answer the question of how the problem of climate change is solved. It will be nature rather than human action that ultimately brings net emissions to, towards zero. And I think they, they mean that the population is going to be decimated. And I just was wondering, what, how do you see the impact of population on the environment? I know there's a sort of a need for nuance with that, but it seems like the overall statement that the vastness of the human population is having terrible environmental effects. But as you, I think, have already intimated, it's not evenly distributed. People predicted for a long time that, that, that there would be too many mouths to feed and we wouldn't be able to do it. So Malthus was one of the, one of the earliest, most famous examples of that. And then Paul Ehrlich in the 1960s wrote a book called The Population Bomb that said we, at that point, the global population around about four, four and a half, five billion that we just couldn't keep feeding people. And here we are 50 years later with a population closer to 8 billion and higher levels of calorie production than we've ever had in history. So overpopulation can be misinterpreted. That The challenge comes where if there are sudden shocks and just up, just well, slightly to the north of where you are in New Mexico, Stuart, in, in Alberta, in Canada right now, in the month of the first two weeks of May of this year, 
heat records were set 158 times in the space of two weeks. We've seen about 3 million football fields of forest burnt down by forest fires. And so the challenge comes where it's not so much population sizes, it's what happens if cities, if populations can't get food to them quickly enough. It's investment in infrastructure, making sure that you've got emergency resource capability. It's really important that a single hurricane last year in the US, Hurricane Ian, did about $100 billion worth of damage. And that money gets picked up by shareholders, by bondholders, by people whose houses got destroyed, who didn't have, didn't have insurance. And that suddenly produces a lot of hungry, broken families. And that can be in itself extremely difficult as a society to cope with, where some people are just unfortunate they're in the wrong place at the wrong time because of the trajectory of a single tropical storm that's extremely strong. And right now we are seeing some of these temperatures and events happening globally. I was just in Pakistan two weeks ago where 30 million people were displaced by floods last year. And that did damage about 80% of the damage was uninsured, almost all to, to small to, to family units and poor people. And you know, that then produces a different vote at the ballot box. That produces a different expectation of what you want your government to do for you if you have no means of living. And it can the spread of poverty in the way in which crises can, can catastrophize and cascade is I think something that I recognize from the past. So again, I write about in, in, in history about these times where sudden shortages have meant that societies have struggled to adapt. And that's why they're not there anymore. The Maya, for example, in Central America, with their extraordinary pyramids they were building. And, and the, usually the collapse of these societies is not like the Death Star in Star Wars being blown up by a single nuclear neutron bomb that sends a massive explosion. It's through slow suffocation, because adapting is really hard. Planning how to do that is is key. So I want to just focus just a little bit more on population. I think one of the criticisms of people who say we just need to reduce the population is that the rich countries, of course, use way more resources than the poor countries. And it's the poor countries who are going to be suffering the most from the effects of climate change. And so their populations will be probably decimated, but it won't actually have an immediate impact on, on energy consumption. So it's real tricky. I'd read it in a slightly different way. So here in Europe, not a single country is currently replacing its population because of falling birth rates. So the population of countries like Italy or Portugal are projected to fall by half, full half by the end of this century. So population, we may have reached or be reaching a peak level. China's population just been overtaken last month by India as the most popular. India's now the most populous country on earth. China's population, as everybody knows, getting older. There was a one-child policy that was formal law, so people couldn't have more than one child. China's population about 1.4 billion. By some projections, by the end of the century, will come down by more than half. So 700 million fewer Chinese people. And that, that will, of course, have all sorts of impacts, not just on how much energy is required, but also how many laptops, how many Teslas are going to get sold. What do you do if you're running a business and you're banking on these large populations who are going to be richer and be able to consume more? It might be that the world that we're looking at looks very different, that there will be fewer of us. And there are parts of the world where population projects are expected to rise sharply, but population rises are very hard to predict. Population falls are a lot easier because you can work out who's having children. Last year in China, only 7 million kids altogether in a country of 1.4 billion people were born. So it would look to me that it's the wrong way around. The stuff we, we probably shouldn't worry too much about that in the, within a decade or two, partly because populations we know is correlated to education of women. And one of the great triumphs of the last 30, 40, 50 years is the way in which women around the world are being much better educated than they have been 
in the past. That, that, that changes these, these kinds of population questions from deterministic ones where we were terrified that everyone's going to starve to death to ones where we should perhaps be a bit more sanguine and a bit more relaxed. I guess the question is whether Europe or China will have to import people in order to be able to care for their elderly and support, not just to care for them directly, but also to have the support the economy that will then support them. And so then the question is, do the immigrants to those countries start using resources like Westerners rather than from where they're coming from? To give an idea of scale on that, per capita, per person in the United States, every single person, man, woman, and child, on average has about 15 tons of cement that's been used on projects in the United States. In China, it's about seven tons. That's about half, because China's still not a, not, as rich, not a hugely rich country, although it's got lots of very rich people in it, and lots of very poor ones. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's about half a ton of concrete and steel. So those consumption patterns, as you mentioned, Stuart, that in rich countries, we spend more, we use more, we burn more, we buy more, we make more. But th- those balances change because of technologies. And who, who's to know, I think, in the next 30, 40 years, do we need to have more immigrant populations in New Mexico? It's not completely straightforward allowing and blending in new communities. You need to have that ultra sociability that makes everybody feel like they're an American and to not have first and second and third class citizens. And those kinds of things are difficult to arrange culturally to explain what does it mean? Do we have to eat the same stuff? Do we have to wear the same clothes? Do we have to support the same teams and like the same sports? How do we all be part of the same thing? And at least in the United States, you've had two or 300 years of deep experience of that. Not always positive. The riots immigrant populations from Italy, Ireland, Poland, 100 years ago were acute, were hugely important and significant in US history. And right now, likewise, these are not these are not easy questions that everyone agrees with. But in other parts of the world, like China, immigration from other parts of the world is, has been basically zero. So Chinese exposure to different people's cultures and their languages and their skin colors and their food types is very different. So for China to absorb large populations from other parts of the world as immigrant labor would look to me really tough and very difficult to achieve because to be tolerant and respectful is something you've got to learn about when you're, when you're young and have it drummed into you again and again. And like I said, it's not an easy thing to do. Right. So countries that don't have the experience of pluralism will import people anyway, but maybe not integrate them so well. That, yeah. And, and that creates underclasses that tend to ask a historian that tends to result in the word revolution, because at a certain point, the people who are brought in as workers take over. So again, I write about in my book, the Mamluks, the rulers of Egypt, are slaves that are brought in as soldiers from Central Asia to come and run Egypt so that the rich in Egypt can take life easy and spend their money in the way in which rich people like to spend their money. And lo and behold, quite soon the Mamluks say, hey, we could do this ourselves, slightly better than being told what to do. Same thing happens, funny enough, with the Turks in, in the Islamic world who come in as outsiders and they end up running the show too. So quite often you find these unexpected consequences of what happens when you don't constantly reinforce ideas about equalities. And that's one of the things that Western societies have not done perfectly. We've had terrible anti-Semitism in our societies, terrible religious persecution, terrible racial persecution. But we are now, I think, in a post-colonial world where we're at least aware that those are a problem, whereas other parts of the world, or some other parts of the world, there's still quite a journey to go to how to think about people who look and sound and are different without being threatened by them. So getting back to the problem of global warming and the, the imminent changes that and current changes, I was really fascinated to read that in the early 1990s, then-President George H.W. Bush at Rio said that we're in an, un, an unprecedented era of peace, freedom, and stability. 
which makes concerted action on the environment possible as never before. And you also point out that even though the words were great, very appropriate, the follow-through wasn't so much, and the, the commitment to that statement wasn't really there by him or by the rest of the leadership. And you also mentioned that after the there was a Kyoto Treaty and a protocol agreed upon in 1992, and that the United States, the world's biggest consumer of fossil fuels, refused to ratify it without amendments, with the Senate rejecting it by a vote of 95 to 0. And I, I hadn't remembered that. I was around then. <laughs> but, wow, that's really depressing. It's a funny, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. My world was one that was ecologically very worrying. I was 15 years old where the Chernobyl nuclear reactor exploded in what's now Ukraine. And we were extremely worried about nuclear, nuclear failures. We were extremely worried about nuclear war. Acid rain was an issue. And I guess we're about the same age, Stuart. The ozone layer in, was something that we were really worried about in the 80s, this hole that had opened up over the poles that meant that we were going to warm up. And in 1987, the USSR, the Soviet Union, and the US primarily drove a, an agreement to, to reduce the ozone layer by banning CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, that we had in things like fridges and freezers, and refrigerators and freezers, rather, and in aerosol cans. And that was incredibly successful. So by, by 2080, that ozone layer will have closed properly, thanks to those kinds of agreements. And that had been part of a kind of rising wave of environmentalism that reached the top corridors of power. George H.W. Bush described himself as an environmentalist. He described himself as being motivated by green issues. But in a kind of strange way, and with the good Lord works, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union suddenly meant that, the last, that, that instead of becoming a moment where we could or should have and would have done something about climate and na the natural world, in fact, it became 30 years of unprecedented globalization, unprecedented exchange, the release of vast amounts of Russian oil and gas into international markets that brought down the prices of energy that made us all a lot richer. And that was not necessarily a bad thing. The last 30 years for the global poor has been fantastic. It's been huge numbers of people come out of extreme poverty in countries like Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, China. And those dividends in the last 30 years, as David Wallace-Wells, the great writer from the New York Times put it, since the first episode of Seinfeld was broadcast in the early 90s, humans burnt, put half of the carbon into the atmosphere than they've done in history. And burning stuff is not in itself necessarily bad, but the quantity and the speed are the two issues. So something could have been done. In fact, George H.W. Bush had said, if we don't make mandates to limit the amount of stuff we put in the atmosphere, our children and grandchildren will never forgive us. In fact, Jimmy Carter had said something very similar 15 years earlier. But now looking back on it, it feels like it was a series of missed opportunities. And the big challenge in the trade-off is, can you have economic growth while limiting the way in which, you know, how the price of burning carbon fuels? And that, I think, is the question of the 21st century. How do we do a transition to a world where we can keep living the same way we do, but just be more mindful and protect the environment so we don't run out of materials and don't run out of, of the cool and the rains that we rely on for our crops to grow? And as the British government report says, as well that you just mentioned, we use 1.6 of the Earth's resources every single year. And borrowing from the bank is itself not necessarily bad, but if you can't pay it back, then there's a problem. Exactly. I'd like to quote from your book about this issue. It says, some climate skeptics point out rightly that forecasts that look into the future can be highly speculative, and they also seek to dampen alarm by noting, again, quite, correct, quite correctly, that economic growth, new technologies, and adaptation may alleviate problems that lie ahead, and in some cases may even solve them. That too, however, requires faith and confidence, 
Moreover, what history in general and this book in particular show is that there have been a great many times in the past when societies, peoples, and cultures have proved unable to adapt. Indeed, in some respects, the human story of progress is about batons being repeatedly dropped and picked up by others. So those would be the regional failures of the past. And the difference here is that it's going to be much more than regional. All those great cities of the past are no longer great cities of the present. In fact, in most cases, they're a bunch of low-cut brick walls with no one living in them because they failed. Cities like Uruk or Nineveh or Nippur or Merv were huge cities. In fact, some of the biggest and greatest cities in the world in population size, home to the great scholars, home to great flourishing arts and thriving urban populations. And they didn't make it. Even closer to home, cities like Venice, which is a beautiful city to visit in northern Italy, set on the canals. That was once the global financial center, way before New York had even been thought of, let alone settled on by Europeans. And that that movement of people, of ideas, of centers of gravity is part of our human story. And part of that human story is if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, the game is over. Our little rock in the North Atlantic, where I'm talking from, Kingdom, we performed consistently above expectations for about 300 years to build an empire that at one point covered a quarter of the world's population 100 years ago. And um, that comes at a price. Empire and colonization is painful and difficult. But empires are all about resource extraction. So the British got wealthy by taking things out of other parts of the world that it wanted, whether that was cotton, whether that was sugar, whether that was wood, whether it was manpower, whatever it was. But the story is one that that requires adaptation. And like I said, if you if the baton drops or gets dropped, then someone else picks it up. But that's why you're in the greatest economy on earth. And we're now number six in the UK. And we're heading downwards because other states are on the move on the way up. In your book and in what you've said here in this interview, you mentioned that you're an historian. You're not able to really predict the future, or at least you're not supposed to <laughs> as an historian. But I'm wondering what your view is about the confidence versus overconfidence that technology can overcome any problem. Because there are people who say, oh, yes, the problems are severe, but we've always overcome things. Our science is so powerful, we'll figure it out. And it's really hard to know because the threat is so enormous. And I think as comes up in your book over and over again, the powers of nature are so vast. And we're this little speck, both in time and in substance, that it's, again, getting back to the beginning of the interview, the idea of hubris. Of course, the hubris gets punished in, the, in, in Greek literature. It does, yes, you're quite right. Look, I think that the things that keep me awake at night at the moment are not... The climate worry is there in the background, but I'm much more worried about nuclear escalation. Yesterday, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, have said that the Russians are comfortable about letting any country on Earth who wants nuclear weapons have the technologies to have them. And that's something which I don't think anybody in their right mind should take in their stride, particularly when... The incentive for the Russians to maybe follow through with that is, is easy to exaggerate, but not, it's not zero. I'm extremely worried about pandemic disease. I'm worried about lunar flooding. We're due to get lunar flooding in the next 10 or 15 years. You guys in the United States, in a place like New Mexico, on current projection, by 2050, the number of days you have every year that are above 40 degrees centigrade, 115, 120 degrees Fahrenheit, you need to be thinking ahead about how to prepare for those. And technologies can help you. Mitigation can help. There are all sorts of ways that one can plan ahead. So I think being relaxed and pragmatic is important while also keeping an eye on the big ogre coming towards you. Because like I say, as a historian, the one thing you do is never bet on human beings, 
right? Never bet on people making good decisions because you know that that's why you have the Russia collapsing twice in the course of a week in the last hundred years. That's why you have a first world war that killed, take your pick, but between sort of three, five, maybe 10 million people, you have 50 million people dead in famine in China in the middle of the 20th century. We humans are constantly messing things up, constantly treating each other badly. And I think the idea that the hubris that you mentioned, Stuart, is to avoid the idea that somehow we've reached a state of enlightenment that our ancestors had avoided, that they were all credulous idiots standing around the campfire at night doing what they were told by their leaders. I think that human beings are very capable of causing their own destruction. And the warnings that we have from biblical texts, religious texts, and from the past should probably concentrate our minds to think staying away from problems that we've done for the last 20 or 30 years is very unusual. And we should be aware that we should be thinking about how to learn from things like the coronavirus episode. How do we plan for stuff that, that we know is going to come towards us again, which includes diseases that of about 500 emerging infectious diseases, two thirds of those are highly susceptible to changes in, in warming worlds. We not, that's not good or bad, that's just biology, but we should probably be thinking about if one of these happens again, what should we do different to the one we did last time? Yeah, so it sounds like your answer to the obsessive worrying about climate change is to worry about some other things as well. I could throw in volcanic eruptions. Last month, NASA spotted something flying past the Earth between the Earth and the Moon. They hadn't picked up until a couple of weeks beforehand. There are plenty of reasons, there are plenty of reasons never to get out of bed in the morning. Our politicians do a good enough job in wanting us to pull the duvet or the cover over our heads in the first place. But I think that the, what history does is it teaches you it's always about the fundamentals, right? It's never about individuals and their decisions. It's about systems. It's about institutions. It's about understanding what risks are. And if you can start to do that, then you probably have a better chance of being able to prepare for a world that looks dangerous. Like at the moment, it feels like dusk and all the carnivals are out, climate, China, nuclear weapons, pandemic. And you just got to look after yourself when it gets, when the sun is setting because there's stuff that's coming through. But if you can get through the night, today, tomorrow's another day. Just want to quote one more passage. Environmental factors, including the climate, are not actors in the story of our species, which sometimes makes interventions that bring down empires lead to societal collapse or catch people by surprise. Rather, they provide the very stage on which our existence plays out, shaping everything we do, who we are, where and how we live. And like most stages, it can be all too easy to think only about what happens on them, what the protagonists do and say, without thinking about the fabric of the set itself. Actors come and go, but if the theater closes or collapses, that marks the end for us all. But I'm a better writer than I remember. That sounds great. <laughs> that sounds great to me. I remember writing that, trying to capture the sort of theme of the book. I think that sounds exactly right. And it's very nice to hear things that one's written and to give myself a good mark my own homework. But I think that's right. The world around us is the stage. We just forget about it. When we, when we teach history to kids in high school, or preschool or at college. It's always about some leader. It's always about some person. And it's almost never that you think about the natural world. It's never that, again, I write in my book that the Spanish for the first hundred years when they settled in Florida, kept writing letters back home saying, this place is absolutely freezing. You can't grow any crops here. We should just cut our losses and head home. Rather than now, Florida being the perfect place for citrus fruits, uh, for golf and retirees. I think that that natural world it just sits in the background. No one talks about it. And so my aim is to try to reinsert it into that conversation because everything starts with those fundamentals. All right. I think you did a wonderful job with your book doing that in such an incredibly comprehensive way. 
So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Peter Frankopan, professor of global history at Oxford University and the author of the recent book, The Earth Transforms an Untold History. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Stuart. If you ever, you and your listeners ever want me back, just you know how to find me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.